0: Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov is in Turkey for talks on Ukraine grain exports. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov began a two-day visit to Turkey yesterday for talks on unblocking grain exports from Ukraine. Are these discussions just about grain? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back.
1: Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. So Sputnik
0: International reports earlier today, Turkish Defense Minister Hulusi Akar said that there is certain progress in the discussions between Moscow, Ankara, Kiev, and the UN on unblocking Ukrainian grain exports in the Black Sea. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov Uh, stated that Moscow is ready to hold negotiations with counterparts from the U.N., Turkey, and Ukraine on grain deliveries. Looking at the parties named in these discussions and looking at who is not named, specifically the U.S., does this signal anything to you? Uh, Do we go from grain to peace? Because one of the things that I understand is important uh, about all of this is the demining of the ports? Mark Sloboda. Uh,
1: no, this is not a step to anything else, and it's not even a step to grain. This is both countries going through the motions of uh, diplomatic meetings uh, for largely PR sakes. Uh, the Kiev regime has no intention of demining its major port in Odessa um, and doesn't really want to ship out the grain. I see it is actually getting a significant amount of grain out of the country already um, via uh, to to the EU, to Bulgaria, where uh, the majority of its grain is actually getting to international markets. There are several dozen ships trapped in the Kiev regime's ports, primarily Odessa, that it has mined in and refused to leave. Not that they could uh, once they mine those ports, but um, uh, they have no intention of demining them. This is simply simply they are raising as a another front in the information war. The amount of grain that is not getting out of Ukraine due to to uh, their Black Sea port, uh, you know, being mind and, and the russian navy beyond it and it, it really makes no difference whether russia has offered to help get that grain out on a, you know a humanitarian escort it has but they're not going to let it out anyway it's less than one percent of global food supply this is largely a pr exercise another way of demonizing russia in the information war and just uh, hours ago, the secretary of the National Security and Defense Council of uh, the Kiev regime, Alexei Danilov, said no grain will go anywhere, at least not out of the Kiev regime's ports, until they get security. And- which they did not bother to define, which clearly said the first issue is security, the second issue is security, the third issue is security, and if this inf- issue is not resolved, the security of our country is not insured, no grain will go anywhere. Boom, it's done. Uh, so uh, they're, they're largely going through the motions of negotiating this, uh, the Kiev regime to keep it in the headlines, uh, you know, uh, with, with you know, the, the largest Western spin being to blame Russia uh, for this, for blocking the ports and that that is the spin that they're going with and they're continuing to make info war points on it. So but do not expect anything out of these talks.
2: Well, you know, I've, I'm reading I've been reading online here recently that there's uh, that uh, it says Turkey's president Erdogan says, I cannot let NATO expand in the current conditions. Are there other discussions talk, you know, uh, going on also? And I, what I, I've read that um, that It started off that Erdogan was basically saying, you know, the belief was Erdogan's just saying this because saying that he won't let Sweden and Finland in because he wants to extract as much as he can. But it's starting to appear as though that there may be something to that. Do you think these talks have anything to do with that or what else may be going on?
1: I haven't seen any indication of that. Um, Erdogan has a laundry list of things that he wants, and he feels that he is in a proper position of leverage to get to kind of blackmail NATO over the issue of expansion of Finland and uh, to Sweden, which the rest of NATO wants, certainly the US does, but Turkey could care less about. Um, And they're making a big deal over the um, PKK-YPG issue. Uh, in order to extract as much as they can from the U.S. on existing sanctions on Turkey uh, uh, over uh, uh, Turkey's purchase of the S-400, including uh, the F-16 program that they have been excluded from and, and, and a, a host of other issues. Um, at the same time, Erdogan has announced that he is going to launch a further Um, uh, invasion and occupation into Syria to extend the region of uh, Turkish control and de facto annexation to 30 kilometers over the entire length of the border, which would mean moving both into territory that is uh, controlled in some points by uh, the Syrian government and uh, Russian forces uh, that are still there and into territory that is controlled by uh, the US occupation in East Syria and its proxy Kurdish forces. Um, And Russia is essentially trying to talk down Erdogan from this. Um, um, while perhaps saying, but you know, you can move into that part on East Syria if you want. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I think that there is some, I don't know how serious Erdogan is about this. He has announced these further expansions into Syrian territory before, and they haven't panned out. This may be another gambit, both for domestic political reasons, and again, to geopolitically extract whatever it wants from from the US, from Russia um, uh, in this situation. So that is something that is certainly uh, on the peripheries of anything now being discussed between Russia and Turkey.
0: Bulgaria won't send weapons to Ukraine as Zelensky faces calls to end war. Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov confirmed that his government has no plans to send heavy weapons to Ukraine amid Russia's uh, intervention, saying that Bulgaria has done enough to help Kiev with humanitarian relief. What does this mean in terms of the broader global uh, so-called unity that the United States is clamoring for?
1: Well I mean of course this unity has always been rather fragile and it has been uh, enough to create the public display of unity while creating Uh, for the actual implementation of sanctions and their programs uh, to supply arms to Kiev, enough flexibility for certain EU countries to opt out, like for Hungary to opt out of any arms supplies or even out of the oil sanctions. Uh, And here Bulgaria is allowed to opt out of supplying arms uh, to Kiev, but what they are doing is fixing Uh, because of the high uh, requirements of maintenance for a lot of the equipment that is damaged or Reportedly, the Kiev regime forces are, are, shall we say, very hard on their own equipment and not very good at repairing it. They're sending it to Bulgaria. Bulgaria is also helping get Ukrainian grain out through its port at Varna uh, and in it's providing humanitarian assistance and has taken in a number of refugees. But I think this is more about domestic political concerns. Bulgaria does have a substantial population portion of their population that for historical and cultural reasons are more sympathetic to Russia in the current environment and the government called co- ruling government coalition contains a couple of small, uh, more, shall we say, uh, not hating Russia parties. I, I don't want to say pro Russian parties, but they're not rabidly anti Russian parties. And they evidently have demanded of this in order to keep that ruling coalition afloat. And if, the, um, you know, the ruling government tried to push through sending Soviet air weapons uh, to Kiev, their own government might collapse because uh, of uh, some of the smaller parties pulling out of the ruling government coalition. So I think this is primarily about domestic politics uh, rather than anything else.
2: Well, the Polish are going to they're not going to be able to export as many weapons as they used to because. Uh, Their people will be very busy in the forest foraging for wood and and likely (laughs) nuts and berries and things of that nature, I guess, when you're back to the Stone Ages. Um, At any rate, and if they're repairing anything, they'll be using simple crude stone tools. At any rate, uh, Boris Johnson is saying that Ukraine should not accept a bad peace. He said the world must avoid any outcome where Putin's unwarranted aggression appears to have Adolf, it sounds like the uh, sounds like the Ukrainian army is on the move and the Russians are running back towards uh, Moscow. What do you think there, Mark?
1: Yeah, I, I think Boris Johnson is again continuing the uh, the U.S. habit of being perfectly willing to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian conscript that the Kiev regime can force into arms and, and shove a law into their hands and point them towards Russian forces. And. Um, uh, Obviously, this is a strategy that that the US and the UK are pushing forward to weaken Russia at all costs to bleed them in Ukraine as much as possible, Um, even if the Kiev regime doesn't have a, a snowball's chance in hell of of winning this conflict, certainly not in the terms that Boris Johnson uh, has vaguely defined as paying off. Um, and I think that this will unfortunately probably continue uh, at a significant amount of, of unnecessary destruction and lives lost on all sides in Ukraine.
0: When I read Boris Johnson saying that Ukraine should not accept bad peace with Russia, Am I reading more into that, or did I misunderstand his initial statements as being no negotiation? So if I'm right, that, he, that his initial trip to the Ukraine was to tell Zelensky, under no circumstances do you negotiate, and now he's saying don't accept bad peace, well, that seems to be moving closer to negotiation than not. Hopefully that wasn't too convoluted, and did I misread yeah, his initial statements
1: yeah. i I haven't seen that significant a move yet. <laughs> it may come eventually as reality becomes harder to deny. Uh, and, and the, the uh, Kiev regime's armed forces, you know, uh, crumble even further. But at the point, what Boris Johnson is actually saying, as I can read, is our client state in Kiev is not allowed to um, uh, fulfill any negotiations. They're not allowed to surrender, not, uh, not under any terms uh, at the current moment.
2: I think I found the problem, Mark, and you might not like it. It's two stories. One of them says Tory MP Neil Parrish was suspended by his party Friday after female colleagues said they saw him watching porn in the House of Commons. And the other one says evidence of cocaine in toilets near Boris Johnson's office. The House of Commons speaker turns to police. So I think we know what the problem is. These guys, Boris Johnson and these guys, they are busy doing other things. Their mind is distracted and he's not really sure what's going on with the with the uh with the war and with the uh you war in Ukraine
1: I I think that that is probably the least offensive thing coming out of the House of Commons on a general basis. If all they were doing was snorting drugs and doing porn and calling it a day and not passing any legislation, not fueling wars, not tossing Ukrainian lives, we should all throw a party and celebrate. Unfortunately, this only seems to drive them to further orgiastic levels of violence.
0: Mark Schloboda, I call that that's analysis right there. Hey, man, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciated. Orgiastic. We look forward to having you back.
1: Thanks for having me. <laughs> All
0: right. <laughs> Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Al Jazeera reports, summit of some of the Americas. Controversy has brewed at the gathering after Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela have been omitted from the guest list, and of course, the president of Mexico is a no-show. I think he, he has sent a representative, but AMLO isn't there. For update on this, as today, I believe is opening day, we turn to our next guest. He's the co-host of Fault Lines and joins us from Los Angeles, Jamaral Thomas. As always, sir, welcome back. Oh, thanks, man. You guys doing okay? Oh, we're doing great. We're doing great. Uh, so the U.S. is hosting the biggest political gathering uh, of uh, the Western Hemisphere, uh, North, Central, and South America. Incredibly complicated since, again, there are countries that have been uh, omitted from the list and others that are boycotting. Uh, so give us an idea now that the, that the official, the red, the red ribbon has been cut, the doors have opened. What's going on?
3: It's very interesting. And before I start, I want to comment on that last point because I kind of had this um, impression just kind of sitting there as I was reading through the media as they were talking about the event and being at the event. I just heard Blinken give a statement. And he basically said, look, we're here for five reasons. One of those reasons being medical is weird since they basically disallow Cuba. And let's be honest. The United States doesn't have an issue with dictators. We're friends with Saudi Arabia. So the excuse of, oh, we don't like dictators, et cetera, is a little go. But more important to the point, though, Joe Biden decided to have this particular event. And, okay, so fair enough. We're going to host it. And in hosting that event, we're going to bring all of these leaders from the, the summit, you know, from the Americas. Okay, great. You decide to do that. You then decide. You make a choice. We don't want Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. Okay. Now, the belief is that we're going to be able to be being girls, and we're going to you know, show them and have them as something separate, and we're going to bring all of the other countries in order to ostracize those countries. It will be a show of soft power from the standpoint of the United States and showing its ability to build coalition and everything else. Problem. If you don't have the political power to do that and the soft power to do that then you are going to look foolish when it falls apart. And i got to be honest, this is somewhat of a thought of all of Biden in general for the entirety of the presidency, this inability to understand his own limitations in regards to the way he's pushing policy. We are pushing policy that you can no longer support, and because you can't necessarily support it, it looks weak. And so instead of that, you get Mexico deciding not to come. You get Honduras deciding not to come. You got Bolivia deciding not to come. And yeah, they may send a delegate or something, but the leaders of those countries aren't showing up, which on some level gets crossed. You don't have this capability of unity, nor do you have the capability of soft power and clout in order to get those people in line in the way that you thought you did. So instead of the media talking about the substance of the summit, if you look at the reports, if you just put it at Summit of America, it's the only thing you hear, snubs for Joe Biden. Joe Biden gets snubbed. These leaders aren't coming. Here's why these leaders aren't coming, et cetera, et cetera. Meaning what you're trying to accomplish basically fails because you don't have the capability to do it. And so instead of you taking an act of saying, Okay, fair enough. Our position can't afford this. It will look bad if those countries decide not to go, we're gonna allow Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. We're gonna silently maybe want to do something about it, but we're not because we don't want to look weak in the process of doing it. Meaning you've got to be aware. Of your limitations, and it doesn't seem that this administration is, and so it takes acts that it can't necessarily support, and the consequences of those acts mean that they look weak in the process. It's astonishing when you really think about it. You've thrown this massive event where you're bringing all of these world leaders from um, Americas, and the only thing the media is talking about is the fact that you were snubbed by Mexico, Bolivia, Honduras, or some of the other countries had words and comments about you not allowing those countries to come. Overdo call it summit of American friends. And
2: that sounds about right. It's astonishing. It sounds to me there's it's kind of an irony here in that the U.S. was doing this as a show of strength. You know, we're going to have the summit and we can decide who comes and who doesn't. And instead, you had countries who are small countries who certainly don't have the economic or military wherewithal to challenge the U.S., but were able to challenge the U.S. in a different way simply by saying, I'm not going to come. And so many countries did it that the U.S. couldn't pick one out and target that individual country for re- country for retaliation. So rather than a show of strength and power, it has become the ultimate show of weakness. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I was trying to articulate. But you did it in like five words and
3: I took forever to do it. But yes, it's, it's that. It's fascinating. I mean, and so you get this thing where people are giving statements like blanket statement. You know, there's nothing technically wrong with the statement. The problem is you start getting into the details and like, OK, well, what does that mean? When you're talking about this notion of, OK, we care about healthcare, We want to create these kind of integrated systems across um, the America's that deal with healthcare. OK, well, Cuba was putting out vaccines. Multiple vaccines. And on top of that, they were sending their doctors all across the world in order to deal with the health issues associated with COVID. From a standpoint of the U.S., we had a million people drop dead in this country. So how do you not bring Cuba and extend a hand to Cuba, who's basically been doing this stuff? Almost one of the, the main um, amazing things about the country, despite the fact that you basically had that kind of economic or an overdoor, basically basically say genocidal um, sanctions against the country. It's astonishing. And then as you go through the other one, technological, but you get to the fifth. And that's the one where it piqued my interest because they were talking about democratic structures, um, this kind of integrated democracy and devices that allow protection and defense of democracy. And I'm like, oh, my God, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? What do you mean defense of democracy? And is it like Scary Poppins who you were going to put up there? Is she a defense of democracy? Is that what you mean by that? Basically, propaganda and us, our mean girl team coming up with certain narratives and everything else, just like the vassal states in Europe. Is that what you're referring to? Oh, yeah, it's fascinating. Like to hear the words, because the words are one thing, what it means in practice is something else. I care about what it means in practice.
0: So do you have uh, any insight in terms of what uh, Biden is going to do? And I'm really more interested in what Kamala Harris is supposed to do there. I I wonder if she went more so because she wanted to go home for a week <laughs> to, to water her plants to water her plants in Los Angeles uh on the taxpayer dollar but what i mean do you have do you have any idea what of what she's going to do there all right. So for today, that's going to be the ministerial
3: meeting and the summit implementation review. Group. We went to that one. That was basically the world leaders coming together, basically saying hi, Blinken basically said hi, and then um, made the statements and everybody left. At five to six, There's going to be the Summit of America's inaugural ceremony, and that's going to be hosted by the president and the first lady. Now, we're going to get to that. The, the, there's going to be a press allowed there. It's like 245. So we'll definitely be there for that. Um, Kamala Harris. I got to be honest, I am not entirely sure where she's going to be. I mean, there's events taking place where they're having a, what is called, a plenary session. Um, tomorrow at 2 to 3.45, I suppose she may be at one of those. Here's the thing, at 7.30, leaders meeting, hosted by the First Lady, that's tomorrow, um, and Joe Biden. There's a minister of reception hosted by Secretary of State Blinken, that's at 6 p.m. tomorrow. And there's hosted by the city of Los Angeles. I am not seeing Kamala Harris in any of these, but I'm assuming that she's going to be at something. There's also a bunch of events tomorrow. Again, I don't see Kamala Harris um, explicitly okay. detailed out, but again, I'm sure she's going to be here somewhere. Also, by the way, there's side events. So I don't even know if she's going to be or show up at one of the side events at one of the other places, like at the Sheraton Hotel. There's a U.S. Business uh, Chamber of Commerce that you, your press pass can't get you into there. They basically have their own separate press press thing that they have to allow to get into. That's one with John Kerry I and mean, many the business leaders that are in the country. Um, and the OAS, the OAS was fascinating. They were fascinated because in the meeting yesterday, they were talking about how great the OAS is with their election integrity stuff, like basically going into countries for elections. And I'm sitting there like, what are you talking about? When they finally gave us the opportunity to speak, the first thing I said was like, I was shocked to hear you guys mention the OAS being great with elections. I mean, for one, you mentioned that you wanted the indigenous community more integrated into communities, even when Morales did that. And then the OAS, you guys basically took him out when he was 10 points ahead um, in the race. That is unfortunate that you guys basically use that as an emblem of success. They were looking at me like I had lost my mind. And I immediately move over to this other kind of conversation. But I definitely wanted to put that into the record. Like, what are you guys talking about? This was not a spectacle of success. And if you guys are talking about building structures like this throughout South America, and you're calling this democratic, that is atrocious. You guys basically were responsible for a fascist regime taking place in Bolivia for a year or several years until the final government got back into power. I was like, yeah, you're not sliding by with that. Nobody else is going to mention that here? Like, it's like, how does nobody else mention that? That was a stunning um, failure on their part, that everybody is perfectly clear that the OAS was completely wrong in that. And so it's like you're standing there like, how are you guys just saying this, and how is the audience listening to this and not recoiling at what they're basically saying here? It's just, you know. It's I don't have the ability to sit back and be like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to acquiesce to this when This is nonsense. I was watched that government fall, and I watched you guys basically act like it was a legitimate coup. It was not. The guy was winning by 10 points. I'm sorry. I'm ranting. It's just… Some of the
2: stuff is aggravating being here like that. Well, I, that, that that leads me to something. I saw a couple of things on on um, on YouTube and on Twitter with hecklers. One of the hecklers was going after I don't know who was on stage, but he was going after them, and I mean for a long time. And he was uh-huh. going on after uh, about the Bolivia thing, saying you were did a coup, and they didn't like know what to do, and they were kind oh, of wow. staring. And finally, like the police or something got this guy out, but he went on for like a minute and a half. Then there was another one where you. Eugene per year was going after him for Haiti, and I'm like, man, this is not a, lo- a good look for them. I mean, like the people in the audience are heckling them <laughs> more than they're getting Whoa. a chance to talk. A- have you heard anything about the hecklers?
3: I have not. I didn't know Eugene was here. I know I haven't seen um, the hecklers. Keep in mind, up here with like the press, so it's like CNN, okay, NBC. Um, you know, it's like. They're far more refined and, and snooty and, you know, we just hear professional reporters just doing a job. It's kind of like that. So they aren't the type that's going to kind of break out and start screaming at them over, you know, saying nonsense. Um, I, however, am the type that will politely point out, dude, <laughs> what are you talking about? Because <laughs> like, I'm like, I was shocked. I was astonished. I was legitimately shocked. The woman was basically giving a speech on how the indigenous community needs to be born into democratic institutions. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. I was in Ecuador. I saw how so many people in Ecuador treated the indigenous community. She's right. Um, by the same token, they turned around and said, that oh, yes, is a great thing for electoral security and to ensure that elections are safe and secure and, and fair. And I'm sitting there like, dude, you are – in cognitive dissonance right now because you just said two things that Clash because the group that you put in were a fascist government that was antagonistic to the indigenous community. They just were. Evo Morales brought in the indigenous community into the system itself, um, eliminated um, or or increased the number of people they were getting healthcare and everything else. He was astonishingly successful. He won by 10 points and the OAS was responsible for taking him out in a coup with a violent government coming in after the fact. So it's like, You're telling me the indigenous community thing matters to you, and yet you're also talking about the OAS, which was the instrument to to bring in a fascist government to take down um, the group that actually was looking for indigenous rights. What are you talking about? It was that, which was kind of the the point that I was trying to make. It was shocked that nobody else kind of made the point. It was like, what? Is it impolite for me to bring that up? I feel it's impolite for you to basically lie like this, you know? But I'm sorry, you know, it's just listening to these guys and like knowing the history of the stuff, sometimes it, it, The mainstream media doesn't necessarily say anything about it. They just accept whatever is being said. It's like, okay, fair enough. And it's like, dude, they are not telling the exact truth here. That needs to be aired. You shouldn't just let that ride your reporter do your
0: job. And we have just about a minute left, and that takes me to my question in terms of what is your projection in terms of the the narrative and how the administration is going to be able to spin this, because we're starting to see a lot more articles that this is basically a farce, a fiasco, and a failure. And and so your thoughts on how 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 they're gonna spin it. We got about 45 seconds.
3: There's no way to spin it. I mean, everybody – every article that I've read, everything that I've come across, it's basically talked about it from the standpoint of these groups aren't here. Biden gets snubbed. Biden doesn't have the ability or the power to bring these people in. It's that. Now, the administration could say this is a summit. We don't want to do it with dictators. And that's the only thing they're saying. Even my interview with – what's his name? Ken um, Salazar. He says we don't deal with dictators. We don't like Cuba, Nicaragua, and so forth. We believe that they shouldn't be a part of it. That's what they're going to stick with. They're not going to go deviate from that. And that's, nobody's accepting that.
0: So they don't deal with dictators, until your earlier point, but they're going to go to Saudi Arabia and deal with murderous dictators right. like Mohammed bin Salman, and they label Maduro a dictator, but they go beg him for oil. So, yeah. okay. All right. Jamar Thomas, as always, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to talking with you tomorrow, man. Enjoy your day. Thanks, man. All right. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Here's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT has a piece by Fyodor Lukyanov. Russia's role in the global economic order has turned out to be more significant than the West believed. Western sanctions against Russia are speeding up the end of globalization as we've known it. A new economic order awaits. Has the U.S. overplayed its hand and is the U.S. being outmaneuvered on the global geopolitical landscape? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John J. and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book has just come out. It's entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn. as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So let me let me get you to weigh in on the two questions that I just uh, posed based upon uh, the analysis in this piece. Has the U.S. at this point overplayed its hand and is the U.S. being outmaneuvered on the uh, geopolitical on the global landscape?
4: Well, I think the answers are obvious. That is to say that. Washington, U.S. imperialism has committed the fundamental flagrant error of grand strategy, which is underestimating your adversary. And you see this reflected in the off-cited quotation from the late Senator John McCain that Russia is a gas station masquerading as a nation. You see that in the other off-cited quotation that you read in the corporate media on a regular basis, which is that Russia is upper volta with missiles. Supposedly comparing Russia to an African nation that no longer exists is considered to be the ultimate insult. And I think that this underestimation has led to the present global crisis, particularly with regard to fuel and energy. Washington knew going in that uh, Russia was a major petroleum producer. If Washington had paid attention to the banter between Saudi de facto leader Mohammed bin Salman and President Putin at the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires a few years ago, they could have inferred easily that Saudi, the number one producer in Russia, or Saudi, the number two producer in Russia, presumably the number three producer, uh, were in very uh, good, uh, had a very good relationship and that it would be difficult, as Mr. Biden is now finding out, to get Saudi to break its ties to Moscow and pump more oil so that the price of gasoline at the pump in the United States uh, will not ascend to 10, 11, $12 a gallon. And we all know that with regard to the price of food, you have to factor in fuel because food is oftentimes transported And therefore, there is this knock-on effect, which has led to inflation that you see in the supermarket, which means it's obvious to any U.S. consumer who shops. And Washington also has miscalculated because if, as is happening now, the so-called Western European allies that turn away from Russian natural resources, they'll have to turn to African natural resources. But that's, in a sense, going from the frying pan to the fire, because we all know that with regard to Africa, Africa has positive relations with Russia, positive relations with China, positive relations with Turkey, positive relations with India. There's a lot of competition there, and there's also a lot of residual animosity uh, towards Europe and towards North America, given the centuries-long plunder of the African continent – Uh, by North America and by Western Europe, uh, which you see reflected today as we speak with the trip to the Democratic Republic of the Congo by the Belgian king, who was returning thousands of stolen and plundered artifacts uh, from this territory, this sprawling territory, which in some measures is larger than Western Europe geographically. But between 1885 and about 1908, was not necessarily a colony of Belgium, but a private preserver of the monarch of that time, King Leopold. And so that led to the deaths of untold millions, the maiming of many millions more. And so by trying to reorient the Euro- European and economy in particular towards Africa, uh, that does not necessarily make sense, particularly if you look at the congruence between Russia and, say, Germany, where you can have pipelines going directly from Russia into Germany, uh, or you can have ships uh, sailing into Humber, the major German port, a hop, skip, and a jump from Russia, uh, there is hardly any kind of geographic compatibility when you turn to Africa, as Chancellor Scholz of Berlin must have known when he traveled last week to Senegal Niger and South Africa. And so Washington and its allies have found themselves in a pickle, and it's unclear how they're going to find their way out of this dilemma.
2: You know when we uh, uh, the, when we, we talk about the, uh, the 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 economics here we hear this now this silly trope about they want to provide an off ramp for Putin so that he won't be humiliated as though this is about uh vladimir putin's uh, uh you know mental state as opposed to you know actual geopolitics but it appears to me that. It is the Europeans and the Americans that need an economic off ramp. We actually reported on an article here a few days ago where the authorities in Poland have now authorized people to literally forage for firewood to heat their homes because they've stopped coal and gas coming from Russia. So it seems to me this whole idea of an of an off-ramp for the Russians or for Putin because they need to get out of this, you know, emotionally unscathed. And underlying that, the reality is some kind of projection where they're saying, how do you let us out of this because this economy is going to destroy us, we're going to have social unrest, and our whole society is going to fall apart. What do you think, Dr. Horn?
4: Well, look at— the future prices with regard to natural gas or so the prices of natural gas futures I should say more accurately. if those futures prices hold by November there's going to be a major crisis in Western Europe but Britain included as you have the possibility of many Western European nationals either being in the dark or being cold in the dark and that is not a prescription for tranquility, domestic tranquility. And factor in, with regard to your point concerning uh, humiliation, that by the admission of Mr. Zelensky himself, uh, Russia controls about 20% of Ukrainian territory, with uh, Ukraine on a slope to continue to absorb an unsustainable number of casualties, that is to say deaths and maiming injuries of their troops. But even with that gloomy scenario, it it reminds me of the uh, fictional French general who says, my left flank is collapsing, my right flank is retreating, situation excellent, I attack. What I mean is that in the midst of this gloomy prognosis, which has a basis in material reality, Washington (laughs) and its acolytes are already plotting for what they call the breakup of Russia itself. That's the latest hot item in the mainstream press. Uh, That is to say, they're arguing that there needs to be a, quote, decolonization, unquote, of what they call, quote, the Russian Empire, unquote. Now, what's interesting about that is that uh, I'm no seer, I'm no oracle. My crystal ball has been in mothballs for years now, but I think I can well and easily predict that at some point, even given the gloomy scenarios that be both have sketched, I expect enormous pressure to be placed upon the Russian city of Kalingrad. Now, look at your map, and you'll see that Kalingrad abuts both Poland and Lithuania, Uh, It's a section from defeated Germany in 1945. In many ways, it's separated uh, from what you might call the Russian mainland, just like Hawaii and Alaska are separated from what might be called the the lower 48 or the continental North American states uh, from Washington to Florida uh, on the uh, northeast coast. And so they're already (laughs) plotting to put pressure uh, on Russia And that's what we we need to be reminded is that the imperialists, uh, one of the things uh, I will take my hat off to them about is that uh, even as they're going slowly down to defeat, uh, they're plotting their comeback, uh, which suggests that those who are interested and concerned about defeating imperialism likewise have to be perpetually vigilant and perpetually on guard.
0: So when I look at Kaliningrad, uh, to your point, borders uh, Lithuania and Poland, uh, and I guess that's the that's the Black Sea th- that it abuts. When you say they're going to put pressure on Kaliningrad, what type of pressure do you anticipate d- d- that they that they apply?
4: Well, uh, I think it's the Baltic Sea too. By the way. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. But yes, yes it is. Sea. No, it is,
0: yeah, it is. Thank you. It is the it is the Baltic it is the Baltic Sea. Thank you.
4: Well, uh, up to and including a a blockade to keep out the food and fuel, up to and including uh, some sort of military intervention, uh, particularly by Poland, because uh, Poland (laughs) has really gotten hysterical of of late. It's really feeling its oats, and uh, it's no secret, as has been reported repeatedly in the media that even with regard to his so-called ally, that is Ukraine, uh, Polish elite circles are now plotting on retaking territory from Ukraine that it feels should be under the jurisdiction of Warsaw. And so it takes no great uh, predictive uh, value or ability to suggest that if they're going to go after their ally, Ukraine, they'll certainly go after their antagonist, which is Russia.
2: I, I don't I put it like that. That'd be war. They go after Kalingrad is heavily defended, but that would be an absolute war. That would be
0: war. I think well, not only would that be war, but when I look at uh, Kaliningrad and I don't know if Latvia and Lithuania want to be in the middle you know, as the Russian army. Yeah, that would be
2: that would be, <laughs> all, that would be war. I think Russia would declare war
0: on as they say. <laughs> I don't want none of that
2: smoke. Uh, that would that would go bad, real bad, real quick. We did also want to ask you about the Indo-Pacific economic framework that the U.S., that the Biden administration are allegedly trying to put together.
4: Well, what's interesting about that is that it's too little too late. It's too late because if you look at the regional comprehensive economic partnership led by the People's Republic of China – it's certainly more comprehensive and incorporates more nations than the weak T that is this so-called Indo-Pacific economic framework enunciated by Mr. Biden a few days ago during his trip to Northeast Asia. And then if you look at RIC, Russia, Iran, China, they're all beginning to trade between and amongst themselves using their currencies, moving away from the dollar. And what's interesting there is that Washington or the United States is trying to, in some ways, uh, shield their alleged ally, Malaysia, Philippines, etc., from penetrating the U.S. market, where China is opening the door (laughs) and asking and requesting that uh, Malaysia, Philippines, of course, have access uh, to the Chinese market. And I think the ultimate tell, as they say, T-E-L-L, is that the United States, according to press reports, it's in the midst of removing tariffs against Chinese products that were slapped on during the so-called trade war enunciated by the 45th U.S. president because it's felt that removing these tariffs will help to curb U.S. inflation. And so if the United States, as is apparently the case, is trying to reduce tensions with China, opening its market to Chinese products, as it shows, shuts the door to products from its so-called allies in Malaysia and the Philippines, I think that that tells you all that you need to know.
0: Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Caitlin Johnstone has a piece in Consortium News: Silicon Valley Taking Control of History. The idea that government-tied corporations should act as arbiters of history and accuracy is steadily gaining acceptance in the echo chamber of mainstream public opinion. How Orwellian has this reality become? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organ for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. Steve, as always, welcome back.
5: Great to be here. Thank you for
0: having me. So Caitlin continues, Twitter has imposed a week-long suspension on the account of writer and political activist Danny Haifong for a thread he made on the platform disputing the mainstream Tiananmen Square massacre narrative. So, Steve... Not only are we confronted by government operatives limiting the free and unfettered access to information and the free exchange of ideas in the electronic public square, we now have arbiters of history changing the narrative of history. And this not only applies to Danny, this is where we are with an issue that's near and dear to all of our hearts, Julian Assange. You're absolutely
5: correct. Ed, do you remember a couple of weeks ago... Uh, I, I, you were kind enough to have me on the program and I, right when the ministry of truth got shut down, I mm-hmm. said, well, they didn't shut it down. They just outsourced it. Correct. This is the outsourcing of that. We're we're I've long said the independent media's job isn't just to combat the rewriting of history. It's to combat the rewriting of real time. And we're seeing both of those things play out in terms of this particular instance in Danny's tweets. Oh, and I saw it before it got yanked. All Danny was trying to do was shed a little context to the issue because the corporate press had decided to run with a a vastly alternative framing of that particular incident than what had actually occurred. And so it's, again, it's not even that they're angry with disinformation. They're angry with the actual information, the accurate information getting out there because when people have access to accurate information that completely contradicts the official narrative... They want to start asking questions, and we're at the point we're asking questions is as treason.
2: The other thing I think, and it's it's obvious that neither um, uh, uh, Elon Musk or anyone else is going to be able to buy um, Twitter or Facebook or any of these social media outlets because they are purely um, machines and tools to be used by the U.S. empire. They've decided this is the way it is, and if anyone pushes back on our narrative, it's problematic for us. We cannot allow that at all. And Twitter and the other social media, even Google, are now the enforcers. PayPal, you name it. They are now the enforcers for the U.S. State Department and the intelligence community. Once they decide a certain thing, is, 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 is this is the way it is, it doesn't remat- matter whether it's true or not, their enforcers come out, and they start sniffing around. And if somebody says it's possible, I think it's another way of oh, the enforcers step up and smack them down. And they send the message to everyone. Danny, With Danny, this was about sending a message to everyone. If you think you're going to push back on any of our China narratives, that's not going to happen.
5: Well, and and, uh, to bring it to an earlier point, too, to where it it is sort of all reflective of what has been done, what's continuing to be done to Julian Assange effectively by removing arguably the most prolific journalist uh, of the last 15, 20 years from the chessboard entirely. You've allowed a comfortability with the batting back of of a, a counter narrative or a question as not only something that can be dismissed, but something that can be physically removed from reality. And that's it that's what that's effectively what a, a Twitter suspension is. It's just we've decided to remove this voice from your reality. No longer exists anymore. It might pop back, it might not but but for the moment we we've altered reality in a way so that this particular viewpoint no longer exists to you that's frightening to me
0: So the message that came to Danny uh, in describing why he's been suspended, the type of information he provided, this may include references to such an event as a hoax or claims that victims or survivors are fake or actors, Twitter said. It includes but is not limited to events like the Holocaust, school shootings, terrorist attacks and natural disasters. Reading that made me think about a story that we've talked about on this show and we go back to quite often because I think it is very telling to where we are right now, and that is – From NBCnews.com from a couple of months ago, in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. It doesn't have to be solid intelligence, one U.S. official said. It's more important to get out ahead of them, the Russians, Putin specifically, before they do something. So here you have Twitter as supposedly to be guardian of the info galaxy. But now you have major news outlets saying, oh, we're, we're lying to you. And it's the noble lie because this is what we have to do in order to counter this hybrid war that we find ourselves involved in.
5: And this is one of those cases of uh, it's not even so much what's being said, it's who's saying. Because the way that the Twitter rule reads, that's the Alex Jones rule. That's the, the, the Sandy Hook rule. Or the part, you know, whatever, whichever one it was. Park,
0: I can't remember. It was Sandy Hook. But, um, it was Sandy Hook. Yeah.
5: Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what that is. That's the Alex Jones rule. You can't, you can't say XYZ involved, say, you know, at the crisis after this. But at the exact same moment, you've got Ned Price walking out there going, I am pending Russian biological warfare attacks are imminent because. As soon as they walk into the health facilities that the U.S. had sponsored and Ukrainians maintained, they converted into readily deployable bioweapons facilities. Uh, the slipping the, the of reality, the inversion of, of, of what's real and what is true, it seems to be happening on a basis that would make Orwell's head spin. I think you would have Kurt Vonnegut at this point going, I didn't know you could do that.
0: Or you have Secretary of State Tony Blinken at the Summit of the Americas saying Shireen Abu Akleh wasn't assassinated by an Israeli sniper. The evidence has yet to prove that to be the case.
5: Yeah, I Annie Blinken with with his shark eyes and his spook cadence makes for some of the most vile and wretched viewing we have to sit through. But the, the thing that I noticed at the summit of the America, or at least a couple of clips that I've been able to see, is that the non answers that they're providing are kind of a, a window into the sheer desperation and the total loss of narrative control that, that seems to be prevalent over the last I had, six months to a year, maybe coming out of the Biden administration. It, it's not just. Um, mishandling an awkward question about Haiti. It's, oh, by the way, the fake president in Venezuela that we all trotted out in front of everyone and said is the real president of Venezuela. When it comes time to needing Venezuelan oil, we don't go talk to him. We talk to Maduro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the It's just, it's so patternistic of what an alternate reality these people actually live in.
2: Yeah, and, and I think you're right. And and I think that's the other thing you have to take of it. You know, I've been saying for a while, what we're seeing here to some extent is desperation. It's that more and more people are kind of getting hip to them. More questions are being asked as their, um, their, their, their premises get more absurd and easily taken apart as we have, like you and I both are on Rockfin, which we love. You can go to rockfin.com forward slash Carla Nixon. But, no, but as there's Rockfin and there's Rumble and there's Odyssey and there's Sovereign and there's all these other places they can go, people can go to get things, it's harder and harder for them. So they have to kind of control whatever spaces they can because this thing's kind of falling apart, it seems to me, in more ways than one, Uh, Steve.
5: Well, it is, and it's really starting to fall apart on the economic end. There's There's only so many people you can fool if they can't afford the cable bill, if they can't afford the Internet bill. You just stop fooling a lot of people with this nonsense if they can't afford to hear it. You know, find brand new ways to propagandize people. There's too much reality, real life stuff that's clashing with the narratives. You can't, why would you believe anything about Ukraine at this point when you've just watched your government give away nearly Russia's annual military budget in the span of a couple of months? And what have they produced? What's the result? There's no result <laughs> that you 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 can't sustain the lies like this.
0: No, there no, there is a, no, 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 uh uh-uh. no, no. I'm not going to sit here and allow you to say that because there is a result. Raytheon stock just went up. <laughs> well, that's... Boeing stock just went up. Mission accomplished ExxonMobil. Uh, mission accomplished <laughs>
5: <laughs> but, you know, I mean if you're, you know if you're trying to work in Los Angeles County and you're paying nine bucks nine fifty ten dollars a gallon for gas if you're anywhere on the California coast right now, it's all you know to nine dollars approaching ten uh how many hours a, how many hours a week are you working for free? At that point.
0: How many yeah, hours how many hours, hours of work are you, how many hours a week are you working just to fill up your gas tank? Which is the same question, in fact, that my wife and I had to ask when it came to child care. How yeah. many hours a, a week were we gonna have to work just to pay for quality child care? And we decided at that point, you know what? My wife should stay home and mm-hmm. and 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 provide it ourselves. But you can't do that with gas. So
5: no, unfortunately, you can't. But and with the uh, Biden infrastructure bill, they're about to add a gas tax for people who live for, far away from where they work. The further you have to commute, the more you have to pay. Um, with no alternative in place in terms of mass transportation, uh, there there seems to be a big push to get people into major metropolitan areas. There's a you know, all the talk for the last couple of years has been about smart cities and getting people onto uh, a sort of a blockchain grid for everyday existence. And the, I I don't know, pretty hard to argue it's not a controlled demolition instead of a collapse uh, of the Western European economy, if not the U.S. economy, uh, creates the conditions for exactly the things that I've described to come into play.
0: Talk quickly about NewsGuard and the fact that uh again this is a whole idea of the privatization and we have we have just about 1 minute left if you could just quickly talk about this whole idea of newsguard we got 1 minute
5: uh newsguard is the, the censorship wing of the public private partnership of what uh, was you know used to be independent organizations that they tried to roll into the ministry of truth they are uh a a spook backed uh bastion of uh, imagined reality about as as polite as I can put it.
0: Steve Poikin (laughs) and as always thank you so much for your time greatly greatly appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back
5: Uh, Thank you very much gentlemen
0: Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik I'm Wilmer Leon, I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Russia's victory in Ukraine is needed for stability and survival of the Middle East. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer, activist, and podcaster, James Carey. As always, James, welcome back. Always good to be here. So your thoughts to—this is a a Sputnik uh, Sputnik news piece. There are a number of Arab and Muslim nations that have been relying on the military and diplomatic assistance provided by Moscow. One of them is Syria that has uh, seen Russian troops on the ground since 2015. Your thoughts about the importance of a Russian victory in Ukraine.
6: Yeah, I've kind of been thinking this since the beginning of the war is, you know, Russia's sort of needed to divert um, military personnel. And in doing so, you know, they obviously don't have a military as large as ours. They don't have as many members. And, you know, and most uh, they don't have as many weapons as us either. But as far as I've been thinking, they've had to have, uh, you know, moved some resources from these places where they were operating as either peacekeepers or actively participating in uh, assisting allies in conflicts. But I think that, um, you know, as the Ukraine thing is dragged on and the U.S. continues to funnel more weapons in, which isn't going to result in a victory, it's just going to extend the bloodshed, in my opinion. But, um, you know, I think that Russia's had to divert resources, and I think that people are afraid. Look at what Syria was like before Russia stepped in. I think people are afraid that if something does happen to Russia, you know, a lot of that protection in the Middle East and a lot of their role that they've built up in the last 10 years as a peacekeeper is going to be diminished.
2: Yeah. And I think you're talking about stability. You know, I think the people in the Middle East, like most of the world, recognize that the U.S. is kind of an expansionist and hegemonic uh, uh, entity and that they have to have some other options. Uh, You know, when it comes to food, when it comes to various things that they need, that they have to have some other options and that if the U.S. is the only supplier of whatever it is, the U.S. is going to use that leverage to punish those who won't go along with the with the empire. And I think they see this as some kind of a uh, a, a, an option for them to have some level of independence, shall we say, James?
6: Yeah, imagine. I mean, if the U.S. wins, say, you know, Russia disappears from, like, say, Syria, the U.S. is going to come back in and either a just restart the war or B, perhaps they come in and they offer, say, hey, we'll rebuild. But now all of a sudden you're under World Bank austerity measures. You know, we're setting the rules. Your president probably has to go before you get any relief funding, you know, things like that. Those are. That's the big thing about, you know, why China is so successful in a lot of places is they don't come with these preconditions that we come with. And I think that a lot of people in the Middle East, even the Gulf partners now, you're seeing the Gulf Arabs kind of go towards Russia because they see that, you know, any deal with the United States comes with a condition. Even Israel gets this treatment sometimes. You're the junior partner, you know, and we will treat you as such. And I think that For the countries that aren't even close to a partner status or a junior partner status or even a necessary ally status like Syria or Iran, this could spell big trouble for them.
0: One of the things that I've had to fight against as I read accounts of of what's going on is I always have to remind myself what Russia's mission is here, that it's not war. They're not trying to take over the Ukraine, that there were very limited, specific objectives. And there has been a very measured approach to their involvement here. And so when I keep that in mind, I I always go then go back to a, a different perspective than if, oh, this was all out war. They're being bogged down and they're not accomplishing their task. And then the other thing is what you just mentioned. The longer this thing drags on, the more the world seems to be digging in its heels and taking sides, and the U.S. is not winning this popularity contest.
2: No.
6: Again, I think that's because of what, you know, the conditions, anything we offer comes with. We don't, we aren't a good faith partner, and that's never been the case. And a lot of people, a lot of people have known that, but there's never been an alternative, has there? There's never been, um, say, a military or diplomatic power uh, besides the Soviet Union. But since the end of the Soviet Union, there's never been anything on par with Russia as a military salesman, basically, or a diplomatic power, and then China as an economic power. I mean, this other pole that's building is pretty self reliant, and that's not something that happened. You know, the Soviet Union was never on parity with the United States, but now that seems to be the case with China, and I think that. The world is looking at these other
2: options and weighing them. And you know, um, James. I know you study Turkey and you're very familiar with, the, with 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 the with that country. I'm wondering about how they fit in. The Turkey is, in fact, a NATO country, but it's a majority Muslim country. They have had strong on and off um, relationships with um, with Moscow over the course of the years, but. Even as a NATO country, they still have to exist in their Muslim neighborhood. How's Turkey fit into this?
6: Yeah, I think Turkey's more concerned with being a regional power and, than they are being um, what's essentially a stooge to NATO. Because, I mean, you have to remember, Turkey was ignored when the Iraq invasion was carried out. You know, they didn't want to participate because that was one of their major trading partners. And I think looking at things like the S-400, they were willing to buy the S-400 and cancel out the F-35 sales that they were a part of developing. You know, they helped develop this plane, and they were willing to toss that because they just did not want all the conditions that came with it. You know, there was going, they wouldn't be allowed to buy Russian military equipment. They didn't want it. And I think as far as NATO goes, they don't want to be under Erdogan, at least the AKP does not want to lead a country that's just looked at as the second largest NATO land army, right? This is a supplement to the U.S. Army, and I don't think, it's probably not now because so many of them are in jail, but I don't think Erdogan really looks at um, you know, his military is being something there for NATO. And obviously, with the disputes over the YPG and PKK, which were deemed, you know, the PKK is still deemed terrorist by NATO. And uh, I think the dealings with that and the clear crossover with the YPG, you know, we've really put Turkey in a tough spot here. And we've made them, as much as uh, people blame Erdogan, I think we've contributed to the bad relations they have with their neighbors because Turkey's policy used to be. You know, good relations with all neighbors. And now look at them, and they fight with it. But they're clearly starting to patch things up with countries that are going towards Russia, like Saudi Arabia. So I think Turkey just, I don't think they really want to give NATO any more power. I, I think they like being a part of it because it gives them some access to things like manufacturing NATO weaponry and selling it. But I don't think they want to give it any more power. I don't think they want to see it expand. I don't think they definitely don't want any more countries joining, especially European ones that they know don't like them.
0: So as you listen to Erdogan's messaging, particularly as it relates to Finland and Sweden joining NATO, I never get the sense that he draws a line in the sand or puts a stake in the ground and says, no, I'm not allowing this to happen. He'll say no, based upon where we are right now. There's always a contingent or a hedge to his statement. And so I've been asking this question since he first came out and said that he wasn't going to allow it to happen. Is he trying to extract his pound of flesh or is he emphatic in actually not going to allow this to happen?
6: Uh, I think at the end of the day, he's just trying to win some concessions, you know, maybe get some sanctions relief and things like that. Because you have to remember Turkey's under sanctions for buying the S 400s. And for, for working with Russia, I, he wants what he wants. I mean, it's the same way he acts with Israel, where he'll talk a good game. You know, he'll say some pretty decent-sounding things about Israel, but he'll still do business with them and trade intelligence with them. Um, NATO, too, it's, it's so clearly dominated by the U.S. that even the European powers can't stand up against the U.S. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to bother to help the Turks stand up to a, a win on Unfortunately, the Ukraine war has sort of saved NATO's reputation and saved what people think the utility of it is. And now people want to see it expand. And we're talking like Russia's going to invade Poland and things like that. But I don't think um, – I think, one, they want concessions, and two, they don't want to be involved in a wider European war, which they would have to take the brunt of most likely. And think of the Middle East being destabilized. What would that do to them? You know, more refugees in a country that already has millions.
2: I also think that while in the short run, it may appear that NATO is strengthened and come together, that in the immediate to the long run, once the um, the reality that Ukraine has no chance of winning this thing, and they're going to get crushed once that happens, and the reality of the blowback from the sanctions and the severe economic pain that's going to be felt in Europe—that it is going to crack NATO. And 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 I'll, I'll put it a different way: I don't think that NATO is dominated by the U.S. I think NATO is a tool that the U.S. used to acquire power of of attorney for all the European nation's foreign policy. And and Turkey's not buying into that, to be quite frank.
6: Yeah, and I think Turkey doesn't buy into that because they've never been considered a part of Europe, no matter how hard they've tried, you know. And now they don't try. But, I mean, originally they tried, and Erdogan tried to make peace with the EU and make these, you know, closer deals with them, but they weren't treated as an equal partner. So, I mean, this is partly Europe's fault. But, yeah, I think you're right that, this is only a temporary shot in the arm. You know, this is like an adrenaline shot in the heart. This will last for a moment, but after the damage is done, say Russia is, you know, in an economic hole again somehow, or the European Union itself is already in this economic hole. I mean, uh, the Republic of Ireland is talking about rationing out gas and starting remote work back up because they can't afford it. You know, so I think that even if you have these leaders in these European countries who support NATO now, I. Don't think they're going to be there. You know, you keep electing people who create these problems and you're going to see the people who offer not necessarily great solutions like Marine Le Pen to these problems start rising up. And I think that the financial cost on Europeans from this war is going to be terrible. And Erdogan, I think he wants to open up. He can't necessarily deal with China super heavily as a NATO power, but he can deal with them. He can deal with Russia. He obviously does. He has no problem violating what the U.S. says as far as lip service. Um, so I think that Turkey just does not want to be involved in suffering. Yeah, the economic cost is going to come with it. They're already in the hole, you know, and I, Europe's going to end up like that too.
0: Switching gears, a Blinken grilled over Abu Akleh killing, why is there no accountability for Israel or Saudi Arabia for murdering journalists? Secretary of State Blinken continues to claim the facts have not been established in the killing of Shereen Abu Akhle. And it was Abby Martin who uh, questioned Blinken last night at the Summit for the Americas. And this is, uh, you know, I guess Blinken's answer about the facts Uh, haven't been established i guess that means the facts haven't been established to support the u.s position uh james carey
6: yeah that's exactly it right i mean we had no problem with because trump i guess was close to saudi arabia we had no problem calling out we haven't even called this out like khashoggi i mean this has been denial 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 there's no other possibility of how she died and The U.S. and the U.S. media especially, they are not reacting like they did to Khashoggi. Um, It is similar that no one's going to suffer for it, no one's going to be punished, but they aren't even reacting like they did to Khashoggi, where, you know, they're not even taking um, any type of inference that it could have been Israel. They're going to just leave that an unanswered question for a long time, and I think that's because uh, Israel is really becoming the only strategic partner we seem to have left in the region, so we're going to have to protect them. They're the only ones who seem at least reliable and reliant on us to a point that we're going to completely, like, just silence that. As far as Khashoggi goes, it was clearly a a nice chance for Erdogan to attack Saudi Arabia. It was a good chance for the media here to attack Donald Trump and, you know, his ties to Saudi Arabia. But as far as Israel goes, you know how it is. You don't touch that, and I don't think they're going to touch that.
0: Final point. We got about forty-five seconds. There's a piece. Israel wants complete control of Palestinian land, according to a UN report. Independent commission set up by the UN says Israel needs to end occupation, cease violating Palestinians' human rights. We got forty-five seconds.
6: Uh, well, they're not going to. You know, the, the U, Israel's not going to. The U.S. isn't going to make them. And um, I think this, what happens is, is this: what makes uh, Palestinian resistance legal under international law because they're an occupied people and they have the right to resist that by any means necessary. So um, I don't know who will support them in that anymore, hopefully Iran, but hopefully we just see more resistance from Palestinians because we know this
0: is the Israeli goal. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Responsible Statecraft has a interesting piece entitled U.S. Dithering on Iran Deal Reentry Causing Rift with Europeans. A resolution submitted to the IAEA this week seeking to censure Tehran is an illusion of unity. What's going on here and what is at stake? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American human rights, labor rights lawyer, and peace activist. He's contributed articles to Counterpunch, the Huffington Post, and Telosore. He teaches international human Rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He is the author of a number of books, one of which is entitled No More War How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. He is Dan Kovalik. Professor Kovalik, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So this piece opens, and I'll paraphrase a bit the U.S. and European participants, Britain, Germany, and France, to the nuclear agreement with Iran. They've submitted to the Board of Governors of the IAEA a resolution seeking to censure Iran's illicit activities. They say from a purely technical point of view, there is a case to make, yet the political context paints a more complex picture. What's going on here, Dan Kovalik?
7: Well, I think that the Biden administration, in my view, really never wanted to get back into the nuclear deal um i think that the biden administration felt pressured by europe to do so because europe always supported the deal and so they've gone through the um at least the you know a pretense of trying to enter back into the deal they've gone through negotiations with iran which by the way weren't necessary right there was already a deal right they they could have just right started to abide by that deal again instead the the us has tried to improve its lie And, of course, uh, Iran made it clear, you know, we don't think that's acceptable. We already had a deal. Why do we have to give more? Right. So I think all along it appeared Biden was not approaching this in good faith. And I think this is further uh, evidence of this. You know, um, first of all, I think there's no credible evidence that Iran is doing anything to enrich Uh, Nuclear materials to weapons grade quality. We know the Ayatollahs has in fact issued a fatwa against building, maintaining and using nuclear weapons. Um, And meanwhile, if they are enriching it over the original uh, levels agreed to under the nuclear deal, they're allowed to do it because we breached the deal. Right. So this is just silliness. You know, it's obvious that uh, Biden just does not want to enter into the deal again.
2: I, I always get back to this, uh, th- to this right here. This is an article from—it's in the Times of Israel. It's from December 7th, 2021. The head of the Central Intelligence Agency said Monday that the United States does not have evidence that Iran has made a decision to weaponize its nuclear program. So every time we go back to they've got a nuclear program, we've got to do something, and now they've got illicit activities, et cetera. And as you said, number one— There's no—nothing that's signed anywhere that says they can't enrich uranium to 60 percent. And our own CIA said there is no evidence that Iran— has decided to weaponize their, um, their their nuclear program, and they now they've said all along that it is for um, peaceful purposes only for uh, energy, and we don't have any evidence. So how do we go to the IAEA or anyone else and say we've got a uh, we they have to be punished for something that our own intelligence agency says we have no evidence they're doing?
7: No, it's incredible, you know, uh, it, and in fact we know that Iran needs and wants nuclear energy for, uh, you know, to power its electric grids. And in fact, you can go back to the Shah of Iran that Thank of course you. the U.S. put in power, right, and supported. And the U.S. was helping him uh, build nuclear power plants. General Electric was helping him.
0: Adams, the Adams uh, for Peace program.
7: Exactly. So we know what, what it's about. And of course, the other... You know, elephant in the living room here is that Israel has, you know, between 100 and 200 uh, nuclear weapons, Um, and you know, now we're telling Iran they can't even uh, enrich their uranium for peaceful, um, you know, uh, intentions. So it's just. The hypocrisy here and the disingenuousness is pretty incredible.
0: Well, and I think this goes to the point of the political narrative versus reality, because everything that Garland articulated is right, and your response is right. But that's irrelevant in the context of the political narrative that this administration and the Trump administration tied their wagons to, and that is the evil, ugly Iran. We can't let them get a nuclear weapon and everything. uh, All the analysis is filtered through that premise or through that prism, ignoring the realities they don't want a weapon. Right. Well, I think,
7: you know, Again, all of this really. So, why are they doing this? You know, what what is this dance about? I mean, the dance is that the U.S. and Israel want to continue to treat Iran as a pariah. If the nuclear agreement is uh, abided by again, then they have a tough case. You know, treating Iran as an outcast, right? And so. This is all about the fact that the U.S. and Israel do not want peace with Iran. They want to have the prerogative to attack Iran if they want to. And, of course, Israel does attack Iran from time to time, including by murdering their nuclear scientists. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's what, what is going on here. There's a pretense of peace negotiations, but the big problem is the U.S. and Israel don't want peace.
2: Here's a here, here, here's a, an interesting article. <clears throat> the United States on Tuesday blamed Iran for both sides failure so far to reach an agreement or reviving the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, saying Iran's demands on sanctions lifting were preventing progress. So, as I understand it, the United States instituted these sanctions and Iran said uh, and Iran said, if you want a deal, you got to lift the sanctions that you instituted. Uh, That was the original issue was the deal was for the U.S. to lift sanctions. So now Iran's saying if you want to back in the deal, you got to lift those sanctions again. And now the U.S. is saying, well, they're not reasonable. They want us to lift the sanctions. It is preposterous, and it just shows that the hegemonic, narcissistic, perspective of Blinken and the U.S. people that you have to give us what we want and we're not going to give you anything in return. And if you don't do that, well, you're certainly an un- unreasonable and unreliable partner.
0: Well, again, that's the that's the political narrative that is controlling the action as opposed to reality. Dan Caballet.
7: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, uh, again, it's hard to think of a case of bargaining in bad faith that, that, that is worse than this. All Iran wants is the benefit of the deal that Obama agreed to years ago and that Trump backed out of unilaterally. Right. Part of the deal was if they stopped um, enriching uranium up to a certain point, sanctions, or, or most sanctions anyway, or a lot of sanctions would be lifted, though not all. And all Iran wants is the benefit of that deal that they originally agreed to when Biden was vice president, right? Um, and the US is saying they're be an unreasonable for insisting on what the US has already agreed to. I mean, it's just... It, It's infuriating. I mean, frankly, um, and anyone seeing this has to believe
2: that it's the U S in fact, it's being quite unreasonable. And, and to add this, if you understand the whole sanctions things, one of the ha- things that happened when the Trump people backed out of the Iran deal, they added a whole bunch more sanctions to make it difficult for the Biden people to get back in. They deliberately put all of these sanctions on here for just this reason. So the Biden people couldn't get back in the deal even if they wanted to. Now the Biden people are saying, we have yeah, we want back in the, in the deal, but all those extra sanctions that were put on to keep us out of the deal. Yeah. We want those too. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite incredible. And again, the reason
7: Trump backed out of the deals, cause well, and we learned later, uh, was it from the defense secretary or someone in a tell all book saying that Trump actually wanted to attack Iran, right. Uh, to launch a major invasion of Iran. Um, and again, backing out of the peace deal was a, an important. Uh, you know, step to being able to do that. And again, I think that Biden wants that ability on the table as well. I mean, that's why we have to be very fearful about how the U.S. is approaching this. You know, the fact that they don't want to enter into this again, to me, shows they want to keep on the table the ability to to militarily assault Iran.
0: I think this shows that in in a lot of areas, the the differences between Trump and Biden are not nearly as vast as they tried to make us believe they were during the election. And there is another thing that Scott Ritter has been very, very consistent in saying about this deal. And that is if you, if you read the deal at the end of the 10 years, that I think was the term of the deal that Iran then would be free to do whatever it wanted to do as it related to a nuclear program. And that going into the deal during the Obama administration, they never intended the deal to reach fu- a fu- fruition. That the idea was always to blow the thing up, no pun intended, before it reached its, its end, because again, the United States never wanted Iran to get this power. So, Basically, all that happened is Trump moved the U.S. plan up a few years before the deal came to an end.
7: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, I think there are a lot of people – and I said this actually in – my book on Iran that I think that uh, Obama entered into the deal in order that it could be broken, right? And that would be used as a pretense for military action. And by the way, when I was in Iran in 2017, people very much complained that they never really got that benefit of the deal. That is a lot of the sanctions that, that the U.S. agreed to lift in return uh, for Iran's promises, which they were keeping, were never lifted, Right. And uh, so, yeah, I agree with you that that the U.S., even going back to Obama, uh, has not been acting in good faith.
0: And, and, you know, just really quickly, when I was in Iran, I got the very same. People asked me very similar questions and they, they expressed very similar concerns to what it is that you just articulated. And they kept asking me. Can we really trust the United States with this? I mean, do you really think that the United States is serious? And I would say, you know, I hate to quote Ronald Reagan, but trust but verify. Yeah, well, it's.
7: I think in the end you find that the U.S. lies. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, particularly when it comes to relating to other peoples, obviously can go back to the early colonial days and the treatment of the indigenous. We make mm-hmm. agreements we never intend to follow through with, you know, and this is a classic example of that.
0: Well, as as always, sir, we greatly, greatly appreciate your time in your analysis. Dan Kovalik. as always, thank you. And uh, the title of your latest book,
7: It is Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture.
0: Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan Kovalik, thank you, sir. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Always my pleasure. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the critical hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Black Agenda Report entitled, For the Peoples of Our Region, the Failure of Biden's Summit of the Americas Would Be a Welcome Event. And it opens The Summit of the Americas is not the property of the host nation. The U.S. has no right to exclude Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, but has done so in disregard of their sovereignty. How serious of a sign is this? And is actually the the political, the geopolitical landscape changing? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report. He serves on the executive committee of the U.S. Peace Council and leadership body of the U.S.-based United National Anti-War Coalition and the steering committee for the Black is Back Coalition. And he is the author of this piece, Ajamu Baraka, as always, sir. Welcome back. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Uh, Phenomenal, phenomenal work. And and you write the US is not fit to judge others or to be responsible for bringing nations together. Every leader in the hemisphere should boycott what has become a farcical event. Uh, Let me add to that, particularly in the context of Joe Biden talking about respecting sovereignty, respecting democracy and being a champion of both his actions are greatly hypocritical based upon his rhetoric.
8: Exactly, exactly. I mean, we we, we, we can't play with this any longer. We can't allow for uh, US uh, propaganda to go unchallenged. The, the historical moment is too serious. Um, these folks are engaged in an information war and we have to make sure that it's not a one-sided war. That we've got to present alternative views uh, and perspectives uh, and present those with boldness and conviction uh, and principle because these folks are not serious about uh, upholding any principles beyond the principle of advancing their interests. So we say there's no way that the United States of America that has uh, demonstrated that it is, it is not a partner in uh, our Americas, in our region. But in fact, uh, an oppressive hegemon that does not uh, respect uh, self-determination and the sovereignty of our nations and peoples here in this region. They should not be allowed to host this gathering of the nation states of our region. They they are morally disqualified and politically uh, disqualified to, in fact, host this gathering
2: you're right the idea that the u.s or any western nation for that matter involved in the ongoing imperialist project could seriously see itself as a protector of human rights is bizarre and dangerous and must be countered um and and, you know when i think of what's at the wars that we've done but what's going on right now a proxy war throwing the lives of ukrainians you know, uh, as cannon fodder just to achieve some kind of an abstract goal, uh, returning to Somalia, the things that are going on in Africa, the Middle East supporting um, the apartheid Israel. I mean, um, uh, you know, you make a, a strong point here. Your thoughts?
8: The, the, the record is replete with those kinds of what some people saw con- say as contradictions. I say that they are consistent in their um, application of U.S. values and principles Values and principles informed by the desire uh, to, to dominate, to exploit. Uh, and so, you know, that's why this notion that the U.S. and by extension, Western Europe uh, could twist up their mouths and talk about the protection of human rights is absolutely bizarre. We should not allow them to get away with this. Look, here's the contra- another contradiction. As they talk about that, this is supposed to be a gathering of so-called democracies, um, the, the Biden administration is getting ready to uh, get on the plane and go over and uh, hobnob with the uh, leadership of Saudi Arabia. You know, and last time I think uh, we we all checked uh, that was not a democracy. <laughs> you know, they provide support to uh, Assisi in in Egypt. You know, they don't say anything about the lack of of, de- of democratic rights of Palestinians when they talk with the Israeli uh, leadership. I mean, this is, and, and, and where was the, the cry of, of the people of Haiti for democracy uh, uh, when it fell on the ears of, of Joe Biden? Joe Biden said, I can't, I can't, I can't respond to that. that basically, we want our boy in power and we care uh, almost nothing about any kind of notion of democracy in Haiti. So these kinds of, of policies have to be challenged. You cannot claim to be a partner. Uh, While uh, simultaneously in your own official documents, you are committed to the concept of full spectrum dominance. You can't be a partner and a hegemon at the same time.
0: I would strongly suggest that after people finish reading this phenomenal piece that you've uh, that you've written, that they get Stephen Kinzer's book, Overthrow, and that they look at. The documentation that he presents how the United States government has been involved in stifling and eliminating democracy in a lot of the countries that are participating in the summit. So when you look at the United States history in Nicaragua, when you look at the United States history in El Salvador, when you look at the United States history in Honduras, and as Gil Scott Heron would say, the endless list that won't be missed when a, at last America is purged, that this is not really a summit of democracy. It is a, it is a, a, it is a summit for hegemony.
8: Exactly. Look, I mean, the, 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 what is so incredibly um, bizarre uh, I keep on using that word, but that's the that's one that keeps on coming to to my consciousness. It's
0: it's the if cleanest have... it's the cleanest word you can use it, on, on radio. Right? <laughs> it, it,
8: they are they are excluding Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba that they have illegally uh, blockaded for more than sixty years and attempted to overthrow their their system. plenty I mean, a dozen of times. Nicaragua, who they have. They waged a war against in the 1980s and have been attempted to undermine, to subvert the government uh, and organized a supported a a coup attempt just a few years ago. Venezuela, they have uh, attempted to uh, 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 support coups and have, in fact, intervened and and arbitrarily decided that uh, Juan Guaido is the president of that country. I mean, the arrogance of these people. I mean, I say in, in my piece that one of the things that people have to understand is these these folks suffer from a serious affliction. This this white supremacist, this psychopathology of white supremacy, is a dangerous affliction because it disconnects you from objective reality. You can no longer see yourself in relationship to other people, <clears throat> and as a consequence of that, people who are afflicted with that that disease are liable to do anything and that's the danger as we see the the end of 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 the of white world's of supremacy that these folks are liable to do anything to try to uh, forestall that inevitability
2: You know, as we look right now in the U.S., um, Haiti comes to mind because the U.S. has undermined any hope of democracy in Haiti. The um, um, recent—who was the U.S. puppet, Jovenel Moise, apparently, unfortunately for him, he seemed to have worn out his welcome, and there are— um, a number of ties tying the U.S. government to his assassination. They now have a leader there now who does not have any constitutional mandate to be in office. And yet Haiti's invited.
8: <laughs> exactly. I mean, look, the, the, this 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 whole process is just is, it's just uh, ridiculous. It's grotesque. Uh, it is a reflection of of the arrogance of of U.S. policymakers who, I guess, they believe that we're not supposed to notice these kinds of contradictions. But they've been noticed. They've been put on on, on blast, um, and we're going to continue to do that uh, this week. We hope that this is the last of these summits, because really, the region we don't need these summits. We have our own independent structures. Uh, we got uh, you. You got CARICOM with the Caribbean states. We have uh, the community of Latin America and Caribbean nations. Uh, we have ALBA. We don't need to participate in this uh, dog and pony show uh, uh, supported by the United States of America. We say the Black Alliance for Peace. In fact, that the United States of America should be out of of the Americas. We say U.S. out of the Americas.
0: You're right. A boycott is only the minimum that should be done. However, we understand it will be difficult because we know the vindictiveness of the gringo hegemon and the lengths it will go to to assert its vicious domination. Yet if Biden is sitting there by himself, no manner of will or the power to define will avoid the obvious conclusion that the world had changed. And with that change, the balance of power away from the U.S. And we... Are talking also today about the economic shifts in the geopolitical structure. So not only so the world is shifting away from the United States on a number of levels.
8: Exactly. I mean that's that's the that's the issue in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Are uh, trying to uh, undermine the the standing and influence of Russia. Are uh, trying to provide a block uh, to the uh, the the eastern shift of power. And to control, attempt attempt to control uh, Eurasia, uh, they're undermining Russia. It is inevitable um, and they have nothing to counter because they have decided that their response would be a military first strategy, as opposed to a more uh, nuanced uh, and sophisticated economic and political strategy. But that's what, when you are informed by a white supremacist mentality, those are the kinds of strategic mistakes
2: that you are bound to make. You know, the other thing is, um, you know, when you say that in your article for the peoples of our regions, the failure of Biden Summit of the Americas would be a welcome event. I think based on everything that has happened, it has become a debacle that basically when if you search right now online and you start even in mainstream news, you see over and over the three countries that are being excluded. The headline for this makes it a debacle because the headline for this event is all about the countries that are being excluded and the questions that that arises that that raises exactly exactly and the fact that you have uh, a number
8: of states that have only sent um, uh, low level uh, diplomats um, and, and you're right and the fact that this the the exclusion has become the real story uh, and the inability of the US to control the narrative. Again, another example of the slippage of power and prestige of, of the hegemon to
0: the north. So there's a there's a people summit that's taking place as well, and uh, quickly just y- your thoughts on that, and uh, what do, what do you expect to come from the uh, the counter uh, summit that is taking place in Los Angeles as well?
8: Well, we well we call for the boycott kind of the state summit. We uh, we strongly encourage people to participate and follow the people summit. That's where the action is on the level of the people. So we are hoping that there are some. Agreements on how we can strengthen uh, the relationships between the peoples in North America and Central and South America uh, to counter uh, the attempts on the part of the U.S. to try to maintain its grip of power over our region.
2: And, and I think that's another good thing that's come of this that, and that is, me in L- L.A., a large city where a lot of people are familiar with in the U.S. There's, there are all kind of events. There's marches right across the um, border in Tia, uh, Tijuana. There's a major event. So the of all the things going on to me, the some of the of the Americas uh, is it, it, the smaller event. All of the other ones are taking up the news.
0: Well, and also quickly before you respond, Los Angeles is also a great optic in terms of the problems with the united states starting with homelessness in los angeles ajamu exactly the homelessness and the
8: artificial border that's separating peoples of, of north america from from central america these are all the contradictions that have to be addressed we should be one region moving in one common direction but we can't do that as long as we have the u.s only interested in pursuing its narrow national interests.
0: Jamu Baraka, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Again, phenomenal piece. I have uh, posted it on Twitter as well as my Facebook page. Uh, check it out, folks. Great analysis. Jamu Baraka, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Anti-war has a piece entitled, A NATO for the Pacific is Madness. Republican hawks are predictably pushing for many irresponsible, aggressive policy towards China. The latest example of this came last week in a speech by Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, who called for $1 trillion budget, military budget, An explicit security commitment to Taiwan and the creation of what he calls a NATO for the Pacific. Is this madness? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, sir, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the piece continues, any one of these ideas would be bad for the U.S. and all of them together would be ruinous. The U.S. approach to Asia is already heavily militarized, and what SAS proposes would make it even more so. If Washington did as he wanted, the U.S. would further overstretch itself and put itself on the path of unnecessary war with China. Uh, Your thoughts on this, Dan Lazar, especially in the context of what seems to be, on the surface anyway, an economic conflict with China and other countries in the world, the U.S.'s only response is militarism. Yes, yes.
9: Yeah. Um, well, things are, I mean, first of all, it is madness, no question about it. Uh, secondly, um, Things are really falling apart in a really rapid way. It's it's really astonishing. It really is like 1914. I mean, that really is the the uh, the the year that is the best analogy. I mean, in, in 1914, uh, it was exactly 30 days uh, from uh, from the assassination of the uh, of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo to the eruption of a general uh, European war, um, and and we're seeing a somewhat similar process here. We've seen the eruption of war in the Ukraine. We are seeing a, 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 an ongoing breakdown in the nuclear talks with, uh, with Iran. Um, and, and we're seeing uh, a, you know, growing tensions with China. And all of them seem, well, one already has moved towards a military confrontation, and the other two seem to be following suit. So it's uh, so things are breaking down. The, the the great Pax Americana, which you know, which has pertained for you know for decades, seems to be coming uh, uh, to an end. Uh, we're divided between now the Congress is divided between Democratic neocons who want to make war on Russia and Republican conservatives who want to make war on uh, on China, and those and, 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 and Zionists who want to make war on Iran and those seem to be our options. You know, it's like one from column A, one from column B and one from column column C and they all involve war. So it's 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 just it shows how alarming uh, the international picture is becoming.
2: You know, the other thing you got to add to this is the economic fallout from the Russia sanctions and that is the longer, you know, uh, the longer that this goes on, the more devastating the economic the, uh, the effect of the economic sanctions on, you know, we can see it with the gas prices. But apparently, from what I'm hearing, it's far worse in Europe. We're seeing now that the polls are out literally gathered foraging for firewood to keep warm. That's a pretty sad and pathetic statement. But the, the, so as this drags on, the social Um, And, um, you know, the the, the economic fallout is going to cause some other problems. I would call it like uprisings, upheavals. Something really nasty is coming, I'm sure, to Europe soon. People will be in the street when they can no longer afford the basics. So that's the other part of it here. What are your thoughts?
9: Yeah, I mean, I I I think that the – I think the entire global system is just cracking wide open, and it's cracking wide open – you know, militarily, diplomatically, and uh, and economically. I mean, yes, we will see you know major protests in Europe and and major you know major revenge taking at the polls, and we'll see the same thing in the U.S. as well. Uh, but no, but what are we going to see in 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 the third world where they are really being hit directly by food shortages? I mean, remember it was a, it was it was a. It, it was it was food shortages that caused the uh, the Arab Spring uh, to erupt back in late 2010, early 2011, uh, and I can't see why why we see the same thing again. Entire nations are you know have fallen off the edge, uh, whether it's uh, Lebanon or uh, Sri Lanka, and other countries are waiting in the wings. So so yeah, I think that we are at a period of uh, of breakdown. of of economic crisis uh, and and of growing, growing turbulence.
0: And so this uh, piece in anti-war by uh, uh, Daniel Larson uh, says that SAS proposes amending the Taiwan Relations Act to include an explicit security guarantee for Taiwan. Well, we know, A, that will increase tensions with China and that'll violate the standing U.S. One China policy. No one has explained why the United States now needs to renege on that policy. And then he also says that after first glance, a NATO for the Pacific might seem somewhat redundant, but SAS is calling for new military alliances centered far out into the Pacific. This really just seems to be a boondoggle for the military-industrial complex. You, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to
9: come across as, as prejudiced against Nebraskans. <laughs> <laughs> they, are, they, they are, you know, they're very nice people. I, I was in Nebraska once, and they're very nice people. Um, uh, but, you know, but Nebraska is, is dead set in the center of the country. It is as insulated from foreign affairs geographically as, as you, you can get, you know, so Seth is very happily, happily, you know, you know, sparking, you know, military showdowns thousands of miles away, you know, trusting that his constituents will, you know, are, are, are safely out of the, out of the line of fire. Um, and, and whether or not that's true, that's, 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 that that, that's, that's highly dubious. But nonetheless, that the lives he's playing with are thousands of miles away, and it's just reckless in the extreme. I mean, ab- abandoning that, you know, the Taiwan policy is a sure path to war with China. And I would think that if there's one thing the U.S. wants to avoid, it's war with China. But fools like, like Sass, you know, have no trouble, you know, putting America on that
2: path. Moon of Alabama has an interesting article where they touch on a number of things, but not the least of which being, and I think this is what we need to discuss, the talk of, you know, what we hear is they need a, an off ramp so Putin won't be humiliated, according to Emmanuel Macron, as though this is about Vladimir Putin's mental state rather than actually what's going on with NATO expanding to the border. But um, Craig Murray, a number of other people talk about the absurdity of the argument that you know, basically saying, yes, we'll make a deal and um, uh, the Russians will have to give back everything, including Crimea, and then we'll just all walk away. I mean, it's preposterous on its face, but your thoughts on the discussion that's being ha- had in the West that the first absurd deal that they come along with and offered that the Russians, that they're going to say, oh, thanks.
9: Yeah, one of the, um, the uh, I, I read that piece, and, and, and one of the, the, and the the, uh, the article... Cited several other articles and quoted extensively from them. Uh, one was, uh, was um, uh, this guy in England, and the other one was a guy named Wolfgang Streak, who mm-hmm. whose work i 'm pretty familiar with, mm-hmm. who is a, a German pundit scholar, etc um, and, and he just you know in his article he just sort of like you no, know, he just sort of throws his hands up in despair that the the eu has essentially given what he calls power of attorney to the U S and if you give power, you know, if you give, give power of attorney, if you hire a lawyer and give him power of attorney, it means you give him a blank check to do whatever he wants. He, he feels it's proper, you know, with, with regard to your, to whatever dispute you're involved in. Um, you know, and, and so, so, so Europe, the EU has totally deferred to a, to um, to U.S. leadership, but again, the U.S. is thousands of miles away. Um, it doesn't really care about Europe. Uh, it's very happy to to uh, to send you know thousands of Ukrainians to their death, you know, in a hopeless war with Russia. It's happy to see the uh, the demolition of the of the German economy, uh, etc. Um, you know. So, so, so Europe is behaving in a way which is astonishingly irresponsible with regard to its own people, its own its own nation states. Um, so it's it's incredible. And and America uh, America has shown itself to be like to be a, a country with a dysfunctional political system, a very poor level of political leadership. Um, and yet the Europeans rely on America to do their thinking for them. Uh, it just makes no sense, and it's leading to catastrophe, to absolute catastrophe. How the Europeans could have allowed themselves to be maneuvered into this situation by Joe Biden? I mean, it just it, it just beggars you know it, it beggars the imagination.
0: This Moon of Alabama piece says Craig Murray correctly states that U.S. President Biden is working on prolonging the war. What Craig misses is that the war is much more about is much more than the weapon industry. It's about U.S. control over Europe and its resources of energy. And I think it's very, very important for people to factor the that one controlling element of all of this has to do with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and the United States wanting to control the energy market in Europe. And because long before the uh, February 24th or 25th when, when Russia intervened in Ukraine, we had been talking on this show for at least a year and a half about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And if you listen to Biden's narrative about Nord Stream 2 and wanting to provide liquefied natural gas from Texas to Europe and talking about how they couldn't let Nord Stream 2 be turned up because Russia would use energy as a weapon. And it's not Russia doing it. It's the United States doing it as the people in Poland forage in the woods for for twigs and have to pay the government in order to do that so they can heat their homes.
9: Yes, U.S. hostility to Nord Stream 2 never made the slightest bit of sense. It was a simply a gas pipeline. The Russians had shown themselves with regard to Nord Stream 1 that their attitude was perfectly businesslike. They wanted the revenue, therefore they would they would you know they would uh, they would send the, the gas Europe uh, uh, Europe's way, and Europe would send the uh, the euros Russia's way, and that was it. It was a very Clear-cut transaction, no different than, you know, when I go to a, a grocery store, push some money across the counter and get some groceries in return. Very simple transaction. But the U.S. saw it as threatening. It tried, to, uh, it tried to, to, to block it at every turn, and now at last it has succeeded. Listen, Joe Biden is very happy. Joe Biden is very happy that Europe has been united behind the United States. Which means that you know that 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 Europe essentially is is in America's hands and has nowhere else to go, but the Europeans should be should not be happy, and of course, <laughs> Americans should not be should not be happy as well so this whole thing is leading to a to a, to ruin. My, my my criticism of the Moon of Alabama piece is that I, I think what it failed to notice is that Russia is winning this war, mm-hmm. and the only thing worse than in America, which is determined to. To, to press its case against Russia is an America which finds itself on the losing end. And that's when things will get really dangerous.
0: Dan Lazar, very well said. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.